and if I'm correct about when this episode is going out, happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. And welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and um, trying out things from history. Um, And we usually like to start by talking about what we have been making or baking recently. So what have you been up to? I have been gathering my ingredients to make, we're going to make a spiced mead. Amazing. Which, if we put it on this weekend, which is the plan, then it should be ready for Mm -hmm. New Year's, which is very exciting. Oh, does it have to infuse? Well, the what we're basically doing is the the very basic honey water yeast mead recipe. Oh, you're doing it from scratch. Of you're, course, I'm doing it from scratch. Me. Of course, of course. I'm offended. <laughs> I'm sorry, I doubted you. But we've got from Morrison's hashtag not spawn con. Um, <laughs> they have these like. <laughs> I love the idea that out of all the possible sponsors for our podcast, Morrison's would be the Prominent one. British retailer Morrison's. Um, but they have this, um, it's mulling spices, but it's in like six little tea bags Ooh. that all just have a little bit of the spices in. So I'm mm. going to chuck three of them in there as well, which should work for the volume that we're going to be working with, which is probably going to be a couple of gallons okay um and yeah theoretically at the end of it all it should be spiced mead sounds delicious i'm i'm very excited it's gonna smell amazing Mm. because pudding spice and honey just sitting in my kitchen (laughs) it's gonna be a good time i want to smell your house Normal things to say to friends. Nobody take this out of context, okay? If I see <laughs> one funny meme video, I I will I'll throw hands. <laughs> I have also done a crafting, but it's one that I cannot reveal here right now because it's for someone who listens to this podcast. Oh, I see. Okay. Is it a festive gift? Indeed. Mm. So that is that is a secret craft that I cannot reveal, but I have managed to do some crafting since we last recorded. How about you? Um, yeah, a bit. I made a cake um that I took in on my birthday, uh, to give to my current colleagues because apparently I'm a hobbit and give cake to other people on my birthday. Are, are you um, not? Well, based on a lie. That's fair. Like, if I was going to be a fantasy creature, it would be a hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) As much as I think it would be cool to be an elf, I I don't think I would be. Um, Yeah, so I made uh, an apple and cinnamon cake with walnuts on, and it was delicious. It was a muffin recipe, actually, but I made it as a tray bake, and it worked Mm -hmm. out really good. in fact, it was we actually better the next day, I think, weirdly. Um, I love things like that. 
Yeah, I think because it was quite a moist cake. And I think the flavours, I, I don't know, it was just, it was good. <laughs> it was good. I think if you're going to, because it had like apple chunks in, and I think if you're going to do that, it has to be relatively moist uh, mixture, because otherwise you'll have like quite a jarring change in texture between the cake and the apple chunks. Definitely, yeah. Mm. But yeah, it was good. And uh, this weekend I will be creating something for the medieval market that I'm doing uh next week and i have decided on what i'm either doing a tinted lip balm um because i've read in several places that they did have um they did use like lip tints including beeswax um and tinted by like some kind of whatever kind of red plant material was available um, but I couldn't find any recipes, so I thought, well, I could just come up with, because I have beeswax, um, because my dad's a beekeeper, and, um, I thought I could just come up with something involving beeswax and beetroot powder, which I also have, um, and, and do, like, my own approximation of something using ingredients that would have been available at the time, and I can just call that a medieval lip, lip balm. Um, or I, my other idea was doing like you have the mulled wine tea bag type things. Um, but I'd have to go and get a bunch of stuff for that. So I might just do the, the lip balms. Yeah. I, I do not fancy the idea of sitting and like individually sewing some tea bags. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I could, I, I would probably just use like the little drawstring modern ones because, you know. Ain't got time for that. Fair enough. <laughs> and this doesn't, they don't have to be like accurate medieval items. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're good. But yeah, that is my plans. I'm quite looking forward to it because I haven't done any, I, I got into um, making lip balms and creams and stuff in around 2020, I think. And I haven't done any for ages. So it's, it's going to be quite fun. But I will have beeswax all over my kitchen, everything. So I'll we'll try and do it with minimal damage. That's pretty cool. So what is our topic today? So this is a topic which was suggested by Matilda in the Patreon server. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash bread and thread. Um, which I also thought, you know, we're approaching Christmas and that makes me think of a Christmas carol and that makes me think of yelling at rich people. Um, so it <laughs> felt appropriate to talk about hedgerows and enclosure and all of that jazz. Oh, I think of hedgerows as so like, I guess kind of wholesome because there's now a whole campaign of like protecting the hedgerows because of biodiversity and they contain lots of different species and but um yeah when you relate it to enclosure it's like oh not so wholesome yeah um it does it does predate enclosure I, oh, I would like to make that clear um So we've had hedgerows 
since probably the Bronze Age, honestly. There's mm -hmm. theorising that as soon as there were farmers in Britain, they were doing things like either leaving strips of woodland to mark the boundaries of fields, which actually are often still parish boundaries in places that still have um, the medieval parish um, boundaries layouts. But then we have, when the Romans come in, we start getting much more formalised farming and we have, I am going to put a fence here, I'm going to put a hedge here, some sort of easy to install boundary that marks, this is my farmland, keep off. Get off my land. Mm -hmm. Oh, interestingly, um, I don't know if you were going to talk about this, but... Um... The indicator for an ancient hedgerow um, being one that contains five or more native species of like woody woody plant. I was going to get into this, but oh, I okay. I will say now I might as well. According to um, an article that I found on Country Files website, actually, mm -hmm. um, you can date a hedgerow roughly 100 years per species so if you find a 30 meter stretch of hedgerow each species that you find in there indicates about 100 years of that hedge's existence wow i didn't know that well specifically the woody species like uh hazel hawthorn that kind of thing mm -hmm. not just like I found a daisy, it's a hundred years older. <laughs> um, but you get things like blackthorn in it a lot as well, which I think we talked about when you did um, slow gin. Ah, yes. Yeah, you often go... Well, hedgerow jam is a thing, isn't it? That you make with all of the berries that you would find in a hedgerow of the different species that are on there. It is, yeah, because there, there are multiple edible species that you find in there you get elderberry blackberry slow like we mentioned uh crab apple as well as the... some less edible species <laughs> i have heard of eating the hawthorn berries though or making making like a, a leather from them yeah there's a, a way that you can cook them that makes it fine but do not go around eating hawthorn berries just off the plant yeah don't or... don't you will be very ill. <laughs> um, just want to make that clear. <laughs> For legal reasons on bread and thread. But blackthorn tends to be in more sort of enclosure era hedgerows. Oh, okay. But you get things like, um, it's called dog's mercury, which you may well have seen actually. It's kind of fairly rounded leaves and the the structure that looks the most like a flower is kind of almost hairy looking um i'll i'll share a picture with with hazel but that's mm. the best description i can come up with is hairy looking <laughs> yeah, I um this. which is highly toxic but is also apparently an indicator of ancient woodland wow also apparently smells really bad <laughs> 
quite pretty. It is pretty. Um, but like I say, it, it felt also highly toxic. Yeah, toxic and smells bad. <laughs> um, so as we move into uh, Christian landowners, especially monasteries, we get heads laying used to indicate the boundaries of monastic land to enclose cattle fields and things like that. Um, I know in Ireland you get them as cattle enclosures, especially. And they basically continue as just, this is my farmland, so I made a hedge. Until we do get the Enclosures Act. Or Enclosure Acts, I should say. Because there was more than one. Oh but no, the... there's more than one. There's more than one. Um, the main one would be 1773 which basically land which was known as common land is basically here's an area of not wooded ground it's not been built on people will graze their cattle there people will meet there people will have fairs there what if since we, the manorial lords, technically own this land. We put a big hedge around it and didn't let people use it so that we could either sell it or just keep it because we can. So that's what they did. Um, and this actually probably helped to fuel the Industrial Revolution. Okay. Because tenant farmers often had fairly narrow strips of land that they could actually use as sort of a holdover from the days of serfs. And these couldn't be farmed particularly efficiently when we get the agricultural revolution um, from sort of the mid-17th century. When we get more agricultural productivity, which means that the Farmers make more money, which means that they get charged more rent, because of course they do, because we can't have nice things. And then the land gets enclosed so that the Lord of the Manor can just farm it all with fewer people and make more money. So people go, I have no work anymore. I will go and work in a horrible smelly factory. It sounds like I've personally experienced this. I acknowledge this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we have... There is are some earlier enclosures, like in 1235, we have the Statute of Merton, which basically grants the ability to enclose common land in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this this act is a lot more aggressive, I would say. It's less, yeah, you technically have the right to, and more go for it, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, enclosure has been gradually happening this whole time. We get a rebellion against enclosures in 1549, led by Robert Kett, where they tore down the hedges. Oh. And 3,000 were killed or injured as in retaliation from the posh people. Oh. 
1607, we get a similar thing from a group known as the Levellers. The Midl- that's the mm-hmm. Midland Revolt. Okay. Who, I mean, it does what it says on the tin. It is, we want equality. Like, they were pro things like extension of suffrage. Um, they had a newspaper called The Moderate and pioneered petitions, which is pretty cool, honestly. Pretty cool. Um, they were kind of less communist diggers, if you're aware of them, who mm. were much more... Yeah, um, essentially, like, creating communes on, like, pieces of land that weren't being used. Oh, yeah, the diggers... Or they, in fact, did belong to someone, but, like... Oh, yeah, like... They're not the, using it. The diggers didn't really come under... Don't really come under our purview, but they were an offshoot of the levellers who are now more well-known mm. because they were socialists. They were mm. properly socialist. Um, yeah, I know a few songs about them, but I don't know any about the levellers, apart from the band that is called the levellers. Mm-hmm. But the, the diggers actually called themselves true levellers ah. in the 1640s. So what you're saying is they were splitters. They were splitters. <laughs> um, but they had passages from Acts, um, as in the part of the Bible, mm-hmm. that they tried to base economic equality on and set up these, like, yeah, communes. Okay. And were naturally chased out of all of the places where they set up, um, most well-known being uh, Weybridge and Cobham, probably. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's the, the levellers liked to go around pulling down hedgerows um, in the Midlands. I like this period of English history because it's, yeah, you, you just get people going, hey... This isn't a great deal for us. Let's do something about it. And and, and what they did was full on riot through the Midlands for two months. <laughs> wow. Um, culminating in what's called the Newton Rebellion in Northamptonshire uh, near Kettering. Okay. <laughs> Where like one of the main people against them at that point had actually spoken against enclosure in Parliament, Edward Montague, mm-hmm. but it was his job to deal with the with the levellers, and he did. Oh. Um, you know, the leaders were hanged because that's what happens, unfortunately. Got a bit too close to um, threatening the class system. Yeah. Um, but there's... You know, people were properly up in arms about the Enclosure Acts, mm-hmm. and especially the original one of 1773. There's a poem um, about it which begins, They hang the man and flog the woman who steals the goose from off the common, yet let the greater villain loose that steals the common from the goose. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just this rant about how we will take back our common land and 
that's going to be, that poem is going to be the teaser image for this episode, actually, because I cross-stitched it a while ago. Excellent. But I'm guessing it didn't stop them. It did not. By the 19th century, there were very few commons actually left. Like, if if you grew up near one, that is very much an outlier. And then we get into the 19th century, when 200,000 miles of hedge have been planted under the auspices of various enclosure acts. Um, but clearly some of the protesting did eventually work, because we get the 1876 Commons Act, which rules that you can only enclose land if there is a clear public benefit. Which obviously doesn't stop everyone, but it helps. But yeah, and obviously Britain goes, hey, you know what we can use this for? Colonialism. Oh, and, and on the list of things I didn't think would be collected to connected to colonialism, but they are because it's British history. Yeah, we get the Great Hedge of India. Okay, what is that? Um, it is a hedge which runs from Punjab to Arissa near the Bay of Bengal. Um that was initially made of very thorny plants, um, like the Indian plum, which is very thorny, um, and was 3.7 metres high, and was a major part of a customs line, it's also known as the Indian Salt Hedge, which was built by the... British East India Company to prevent salt smuggling because taxes on salt were so high that that was a thing. Um, but yeah, that, that hedge was put in place at the start of the 19th century and remained in place until 1879. Um, not because the British decided to do something nice, but because they seized control of where a lot of the salt was manufactured and decided to tax it there instead. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Great, Wonderful. great job, guys. Um, there's also similar things incorporated in other places. Uh, the Qing Dynasty had a customs hedge well, fence that developed into a hedge in the 17th century, but I'm focusing mostly on Britain just because that's what I have sources for. Um, so yeah, we then start to get actually a lot of hedgerow removal during the First and Second World War sort of period when we're starting to try and become more self-sufficient in terms of food because they want to make bigger fields that we can get modern 1930s equipment through in in order to, to dig for victory and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. um, which I actually did happen 
to a lesser extent during the Napoleonic Wars because there were blockades by Napoleon, which I think we mentioned in the sugar episode, but it wasn't just sugar that was being blockaded. Um, up to 50% of hedgerows were removed during that period, which is a lot. Yeah. If you think about how many hedgerows you see now going into the countryside. Yeah, there's still, it seems like there's quite a lot, but like... Yeah, like so, some of those have been added back in, which I'll talk mm -hmm. about in a moment. Okay. But it's still a lot of removal. Yeah. That's a huge amount of, a lot bigger fields. Um, so I feel like I'm powering through this quite quickly. I don't know why. Um, but then in the 70s, we get Dutch elm disease and the hedgerow mm. elm, yeah, as the name suggests, is in hedgerows. Yeah. So, you know, some of that dies off, but a lot of the hedgerow elm actually survives better than regular elm trees. Oh, interesting. Why is that? It's just more resistant to that specific disease. Okay. Uh, but yeah. then we start to get people... Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to interject with a fun fact, um, which is that my hometown, Eastbourne, is one of the only places in the country that still has its elm trees because we managed to avoid Dutch elm disease. That's cool. There you go. <laughs> uh, yes, but around this time, we also get people getting a lot more interested in biodiversity and general greening. But yeah, so we get in 1978, this is from hedgelaying.org.uk. Ooh. <laughs> Three hedgelayers, uh, Fred Whitefoot, Clive Matthew, and Valerie Greaves, uh, decides that hedgelaying needs to be rekindled as a skill in order to save our hedgerows. And they set up. Traditional hedgelaying is quite a craft, isn't it? It is. There's very particular shapes and species that are used in order to get it sustainable and strong. Mm -hmm. Which, if if you get a chance to look at hedgelaying.org, absolutely do. <laughs> um, but yeah, they set up the Hedgelaying Society. They host hedgelaying competitions and certification. <laughs> wow which I honestly kind of want to do for funsies yeah just have it on your CV as certified hedge layer <laughs> um, there is in fact also a national hedgerow week amazing um, which is in October sponsored oh, by the Tree time. Council Okay, I know, like, it, it's, like, Council for Management of Trees, but, like... Are you picturing Ents? I'm picturing Ents. I'm picturing an <laughs> Ent root. Well, that's why it takes them a whole week. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like, we have finally realised hey, biodiversity is good and important. Mm -hmm. Because, again, 
there are a lot of species in hedgerows, especially the older ones. There are a lot of those produce fruit and berries that even if we can't have, animals can have. So in especially with a monoculture, there's so much life in the hedgerows because it can't live in the fields a lot of the time. Yeah. Like it is ridiculous how much life you will find in a hedgerow. I don't think it is possible, honestly, these days to walk down a country road and not hear something in the hedges. Yeah, I've I've been walking um past a hedgerow in spring before and you just like you're just like, why is the hedge so loud? And it's because there's a whole flock of tiny birds in there just yelling. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't see them because they're in the hedge. So it's just a very loud bush. Um, but yeah, we actually get in 1997 the Hedgerow Regulations Act. Oh. Where you have to have a good reason to remove a hedgerow. I almost swore that's how good your reason has to be. <laughs> so it can't just be like too loud. Oh no, like the RSPB talks about how important hedgerows are for birds. There's um they're listed as a habitat of principal importance for biodiversity conservation. Uh, the Wildlife Trust is very into hedgerows because you have things like the brown hair streak, which I hadn't heard of, but is apparently a kind of butterfly, which really likes to hang out in Blackthorn in southern England. Mm -hmm. uh, Dormice like to hibernate in hedgerows and nest in honeysuckle which is just the cutest thing oh my god they make a little nest of honeysuckle in the hedgerow and they sit there eating the hazelnut that's the most whimsical thing i've heard all month it makes me so happy oh <laughs> somebody please draw this um, bees and horseshoe bats seem to use hedgerows in their navigation. Like, they will, like, you know, how there's the thing about how homing pigeons will follow roads? Okay, yeah. Um, you might not have known that. There's a fun fact for you. Um, sometimes homing pigeons will just like follow a motorway because they went down it. Um, but yeah, bees and bats, again, the specific example that I found on the Wildlife Trust is horseshoe bats will follow hedgerows as though they are roads. Wow. Hedgerows. Hedgerows. Yes. I'm getting excited about bats. Sorry. I, yeah, I'm <laughs> looking at the horseshoe bat right now because I want to know what it looks like. Oh my gosh. The Greater Horseshoe Bat oh, is one of my favourite bats. Him ears. Him ears. <laughs> I might post a picture of a horseshoe bat 
to the Patreon server without context. Incidentally, I got a new water bottle recently, which has greater horseshoe bats on it. And Amazing. it makes me very happy because I lost my old one on the train from Edinburgh. Oh, nice. <laughs> I am also happy that you have that. <laughs> are we just are we just having a bat moment? I'm just having a bat moment, okay. Oh, okay, give us a minute, everyone. The the part of my soul that is still a teenage goth. <laughs> I never dressed like a goth, but I was one at heart. Um, I I stood out enough already. I guess you could say you've got the spirit. Yes, the unholy spirit. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the point is, hedgerows are being protected. They're being replanted, and yeah, especially in the last couple of years, sort of during. Lockdown, there's been a resurgence of interest in wild food and in foraging, which has led to more interest in hedgerows because, again, there's a lot of food in them, if you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, please don't pick elderberries unless you're definitely sure it's an elderberry because it could be hawthorn. Uh, I think we did um, touch on this in rose hips as well. Yeah, um, I just... I just want to post this out there. There's a lot of food there, but please make sure you know what you're doing. Yes. I would recommend um, the classic book, Food for Free, um, if you're looking to get into foraging. Yes, it is a very good book with very good advice. Like, maybe triple check anything before you eat it. <laughs> and just try a small amount, just in case, as a quadruple check. <laughs> We should do an episode on that book. Maybe we should, yeah. We both have copies, though. All right, let's do it. <laughs> uh, but yes, that is my brief history of Hedros for Matilda. And the future of Hedros is looking bright at the moment. Cute. And that makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah, that was really interesting, that book. Like, the Hedrow in kind of a different light for me as like to have find out about something that I was quite attached to as like a um oh this is a thing that's really important for nature and biodiversity mm -hmm. and you know traditional things like picking berries and making things out of them um and then to find out a bit about the history of how that has been used as a way to sort of take away people's rights to land and um yeah so i guess as as a more of a tool of um of like not so great things but then i guess you know things can be both yeah hedgerows are Morally neutral, but <laughs> environmentally good. Um, but yes, I will put a link. I will put a link to hedgelink.org um, in the show notes so that people can check that out if they want to. Um, oh, actually, and I did just want to tag on the end um, when you were talking about uh, 
the rights to land and enclosure of land and things um that um there is an element of that still happening today in that there's a lot of rights of way that are across private land but historically people have always had the right to um walk oh, over yes, them on the right the, to roam yeah on on the um footpaths um but that is under threat at the moment because um there are a lot of these historic footpaths that are missing from the map um and if you're in the uk uh, the government has a deadline of 2026 for when they have to be registered. Otherwise, they they will be lost. That right of way will no longer be there. So, um, yeah, if you're in the UK, you can identify them. There's a, a group called Ramblers, which has a website where you can register them. Um, so we'll also put a link to that in the show notes yes. and we'll tweet that as well because that is really important and time sensitive um yes yeah let's not lose our right to roam um but yeah thank you very much that was cool so what is our local larder right uh considering here in the UK, we're going through a cold snap. Um, it's very, very chilly, very frosty. And so I thought I would like to talk about one of my favourite winter drinks, uh, which is technically a cocktail, although it only has too many ingredients. And it is the Whiskey Mac. Oh, I've not come across this one. Ah, so a whiskey mac is essentially just whiskey and ginger wine in equal measure. Can be served over ice or can be drunk as a hot toddy. And it's just like the most warming winter drink. Um, so usually made um, using scotch. Um, usually a blended scotch, because why would you take a fancy single malt and make it taste like something else? Mm -hmm. um, and then ginger wine, which is quite a regional thing, I think. Well, regional as in, I guess, to a sort of country. But um, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's kind of an acquired taste ginger wine. We mentioned it in your episode on ginger. Yes. Um, I think that um, it's uh was was thought to have you know medicinal properties and it's healthy um ah uh, yes because the main thing we learned from the ginger episode is everyone tried a bit of ginger and went this is delicious and <laughs> has to be good for you um yeah so it's kind of like oh it's tingly and good for you and whiskey <laughs> is also tingly uh what if we put them together that'll warm you up and it does making a nice tingle drink it's it's such a tingle drink. Um, I I really like it. <laughs> um, but uh, the origin of the the whiskey Mac, or to give it its full name, the whiskey McDonald's, which okay. <laughs> sounds if you say like, so. <laughs> it sounds like when you're angry at someone and you use their full name, <laughs> whiskey McDonald, get down here. <laughs> what have you done this time whiskey mcdonald's 
Um, damn it, Whiskey McDonald. <laughs> I'm going to make a D&D character called Whiskey McDonald's. Do it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, so... I, the reason why... It's named the Whiskey Mac is according to its origin story, uh, which is where we get back into colonialism corner, um, because it was uh, supposedly invented by a general um, who was serving in India during the British occupation. Uh, right now, where did I see his name? Because it's very long. Okay, Major General Sir Hector Archibald MacDonald. Okay, that's not it's not as long as I thought it was going to be when you said that. <laughs> Could be longer. <laughs> Could be longer. I think it's just the ma Major General Sir. Yeah, but... but there's only one middle name, so, you know, how posh is he really? <laughs> yeah, well, he's actually not that posh. He is, like, one of the only people, I think, in, like... British army history who has managed to join as a private and work their way up to being a major general. That is impressive, but given the time, I'm guessing he did some horrific things together. Um, I mean, probably. <laughs> Just statistically. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he wasn't involved in, like, a lot of the Empire, um... I almost said shenanigans. Action. That's not uh, the right word. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. But we don't um, swear on this podcast, so <laughs> we can't use the right word. Um, but so he he was in India at the time, and um, apparently there was a breakout of cholera. And so the officers started drinking ginger wine because that'll save you. Yeah. Um, and... Um, apparently he decided that he was going to have some whiskey with his ginger wine and, and it became a thing. Um, so that is the, the folklore behind it. Um, but as with so many of these things, like it's two ingredients mixed together could have happened anywhere. Um, and that's why it's called the whiskey map. Um, so there's a couple of ways to make it hot um you can just add a little boiling water in place of ice and maybe put a lemon slice on top like that the exact opposite of ice boiling water <laughs> yes um or you can add sort of honey and spices and things um to make it you know sort of a bit more wintry festive kind of kind of thing which sounds very delicious actually so I've, I've not tried it hot so i think i might have to give that a try uh, over the winter um but yeah most recipes specify green ginger wine um as if it's some kind of specific variety but green ginger wine actually refers to the green bottle of stones ginger wine which is the oldest brand um which it should be fair a lot of cocktail recipes do prefer specific brands of things yeah and i think was, honestly i guess it makes sense because it probably does taste <laughs> different but how different is it going to taste really 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's actually not that many makers of ginger wine, so mm-hmm. you, you don't have a huge amount of choices, but um, yeah. Although ginger wine um, has, uh, there's, there's uh, Elizabethan references to ginger wine being made. So that one is quite an old taste, um, really. Yeah. Um, so there you go, warming, wintry, and very tasty if you are a whiskey drinker. I'll have to mention that one to Nick because they are a whiskey drinker. Although I won't because they edit this. <laughs> hey Nick, do you want to try this? Therefore you've already mentioned it. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you as usual for listening to us ramble on about things we're interested in if you want to support us as i said there is a patreon bread and thread where you can get access to a discord server as well as monthly recipes we are also on twitter at bread and thread where there will be uh pictures that we talk about in the episodes posted there'll be teasers for upcoming episodes um and we retweet relevant things um uh, oh, okay you can also email us on <laughs> bread and thread podcast okay. at gmail.com if you want to um tell us your favorite bats or request an episode or let us know what you think of the podcast tweet us a picture of a hedgerow yeah let, let us see especially if you're not in the uk or ireland i want to see hedgerows with species i've never heard of Yes, please. But yes, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.